This is The Guardian. Hello, I'm Faker Others and welcome to The Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Sam Kerr backflips her way into the Wembley record books again as Chelsea get another one-up on United to win a third consecutive FA Cup. Emma Hayes outmanoeuvred Mark Skinner to stop United from winning their first piece of silverware in front of a record crowd. We'll dissect the final, look ahead to a huge weekend in the WSL, plus take your questions. And that's today's Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Well, what an incredible panel we have today. Susie Rack, I just love keeping up with you. I mean, we obviously keep up with each other on WhatsApp, but the lino art I am loving. I might buy some from you. <laughs> and then working on the floor outside Wembley with the glamour of journalism. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was rough. <laughs> we were there for a good half an hour after being chucked out. About seven of us sat on the floor still typing. Not the best facilities in the world for journalists after games I think they forget that once the final whistle goes whilst most of their jobs stop our start no not very helpful but at least it wasn't raining um listen we have in the red corner if I could do a boxing analogy but I'm not very good at that I don't have that wonderful I mean to be fair I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast if I did because I think he earns an absolute fortune Mr Mr ring announcer I can't remember what his name is uh, but in the red corner we have Manchester United writer for 90 min uh, Jamie Spencer double debut today how you doing Jamie it's, it's really good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It feels like the big leagues getting called up. <laughs> I, well, I, I'm just going to apologise for the next uh, hour in that case, because it might not feel like that by the end. And then in the blue corner and actually wearing blue as well, which is impressive. Two time FA Cup winner with Chelsea, Claire Rafferty. It's so good to see you, Raff. You're right. Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, wearing blue today. Happy after the weekend. Um, yeah, very grateful to be on the platform today. Excellent. Well, it's lovely to have you. A double debut, Susie. This is incredible. We better up our game. Right. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm just going to caveat this because this is where we're going to start, obviously, at Wembley. Um, I'm not going to take credit for this, but it made me giggle. So thank you, producer Jesse. Football is a simple game. 22 women chase a ball for 90 minutes. And at the end, Sam Kerr scores, which is pretty... <laughs> inevitable uh, a third consecutive FA Cup for Chelsea back to back to back it's something that hasn't been achieved since Arsenal won four on the bounce between 2006 and 2010 Susie how impressive an achievement is that given the landscape of women's football today it's much more competitive isn't it oh yeah and like if anything I would say this is the most impressive Chelsea FA Cup win of those three as well given the context of like how much stronger the the league is as a whole you know you've got almost this four horse like title race right until the end of the season or till close to the end of the season anyway and you've got a Chelsea team who have had their own set of injuries be missing really key players haven't like maybe had the swagger that they've had in recent years so like with all that context I, like for me this is the most impressive because they're they're doing it despite all of that still winning and that that's what I think is is really great yeah how much has this Chelsea side developed Raf since you were at the club because obviously you know this incredible run of trophies didn't come by accident the seeds were planted a long time ago 
Yeah, of course. You look when I when I look at that team, and I know obviously the first half was it wasn't great for Chelsea. Um, I still had that belief, and I think that's what it is all about at Chelsea now. That winning mentality. I know it sounds cliche, but I think we've been in the position in the past where we didn't have the ability to win games and ride them out, and actually have the patience and experience to do so. But seeing kind of the the unfolded uh, personality and endeavour from the team, um, even though, you know, they weren't at their best, is exactly uh, what Emma has, has worked so hard to install. Yeah, they just know how to win, don't they? Mentality monsters in, in inverted commas, to use that moniker again. Uh, Jamie, it was obviously a, a first FA Cup final appearance for, for Manchester United. How do you think they're going to reflect on the day going forward? If I could just answer through my tears. Um, it's it's <laughs> bittersweet because obviously they've got the experience of playing in that game, but because they lost, it's always going to be a negative in that sense. But you know, they've taken setbacks before over the last 18 months or so, particularly under, under Mark Skinner, and, and he's always said that those are important learning curves. So in that sense, it will, but you know, if, in any way, it, it could have been more... It would have almost been easier to swallow had it been a comfortable defeat in that sense. You know, the fact that it was 1-0, the fact that they were the best team for probably about an hour... You know, they had more possession, more shots, more shots on target, had chances, penalty, borderline, was it, was it not? No. <laughs> Fair but yeah, um, just, just I think that was their best chance to beat Chelsea. A lot been made about having never beaten Chelsea before and and obviously the games are getting a lot closer from the, the 6-1 at the start of last season, the 4-2 when they were winning twice at Kings Meadow and then 1-0 um, only a few weeks ago and then 1-0 again and I think I said to someone during the match when United were on top and not scoring that just wait for Sam Kerr to score the winner at some point and obviously she did so it's quite hard to swallow in that sense. Yeah, we'll talk about some of those missed chances in a second but obviously Kerr's 68th minute goal proved to be the winner. Um, Susie, it could have all been very different though as, as Jamie alluded to there. Manchester United roared out of the blocks at the start of this match. What was it, 23 seconds for Leah Goulton? Yeah, the 23 seconds that, like, shouldn't have existed, should it? Because, like, the the Lions woman should have had her flag up, like, way sooner and it just shouldn't have played out because it was basically this whole long passage of play that just didn't need to happen, that's completely pointless. And uh, me and Johnny Lou were sat there just going, well, that was, that was like, a great 20 seconds of our lives we'll never get back. Yeah, I just I just don't understand why they don't just get the flag up right away for something like that. Why you let it go on so far for the ball to be in the back of the net? It just I don't know. It just kills something a little bit. Um, but yeah, it could have been so different. I I really think the game needed that that to be a goal. It was it was actually quite a boring game. I think it's fair to say, particularly that first half was really like quite turgid to watch at times. I think it was quite telling that the Mexican wave was going around within half an hour. Like fans had to make their own fun a little bit. Like it wasn't like last season a particularly fun final to watch. In part, that's because obviously Man United couldn't find the back of the net or even really carve out that many clear-cut chances. You know, Chelsea were efficient to a certain extent in, in that respect. But... Yeah, I, I just found it quite difficult to watch and it wasn't until Kerr's goal that we really saw it come to life a bit. Neither team wanted to lose a little bit too much in that first half for me and um, yeah, I, I, I just thought it was a little bit flat. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It wasn't. It certainly wasn't a thriller and, and Claire, we kind of 
used to saying this at the moment about Chelsea. They they didn't really look like the kind of team that we've seen in the past week, but they almost look overawed by the situation, which was really bizarre, bearing in mind it's not as if they've not been there before. Yeah, and you know what? I think what Chelsea struggled with was breaking United's block at first. And, you know, I've actually been in a game before at Wembley where you just can't get close. And when, as soon as that kind of gets in your your head, your mentality changes a little bit, you start feeling lethargic, you start feeling slow. And I think what it was, was they, they just kind of lacked, you know, players within the spaces in between, in between the lines to connect with Sam Kerr at top, on the top. And I think, you know, Chelsea's wingers were too often receiving under too much pressure. And so I think obviously then allowed Elatoon to pick the ball up in those spaces. But I think generally the, the, the mindset in that first half, given the early goal slash no goal um, from, from United, it really kind of affected the, the mentality. And there's nothing worse than looking up at Wembley. You see the, you know, the packed stadium and the pitch just feels massive. I've been there. Um, I remember actually for West Ham, and not, not particularly for Chelsea, but for West Ham in the final when we played Man City, in the second half of that game, I remember just feeling like there were, the pitch was triple the size than it was. And I think that's because you, we couldn't get close to the opposition. So I think that's probably similar to the, how the Chelsea players felt. Yeah, um, I, what I thought was interesting was Emma said afterwards, Emma Hayes said afterwards, that people forget that Chelsea play more games in a season than any other team in the league because they always go further than any other in, in all the competitions. So obviously so just marginally ahead of Arsenal this year in getting to the FA Cup final. But... Um, I think that's a big a big part of it. And she said, you can't forget that they won the last two games really convincingly and not every game is going to be the perfect game. Um, she said that the general manager, Paul Green, said that it was the worst half of FA Cup football they had ever played in the first half. But she was like really, I, I thought really interesting in talking about the quality of a win because she said that like, sometimes we spend too much time sneering or looking down at, at winning football matches the way we do and that there's this sense that everything has to be perfect but that it's you know any winning manager will tell you that it's having that mixture of performances over the course of the season that matters and what she's spent her time doing is working on them as as being a team in transition and trying to still win and trying to maintain winning despite being in transition with you know so many players out injured players rumored to be leaving all that kind of stuff that's what sort of makes it interesting, I guess. It's like not necessarily the stuff that's going on on the pitch. It's the stuff that's going on off the pitch to almost keep them performing at just this insane level despite um, and, and winning and maintaining that mentality despite all of these things going on around them. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I, I do feel as if we've watched this Chelsea side for so long that we expect the kind of swashbuckling victories every single time. But you can't put in those kind of performances all the time. I, I feel as if United needed a swashbuckling performance, though, Jamie. And it was maybe a bit of a, a missed opportunity, particularly not taking hold when, when they were fully in control in the first half and scoring in the first 45 yeah, I think if you looked at the game beforehand, this is probably United's best opportunity that they've had to beat Chelsea, and then it just so happened to coincide with it being the final as well. Um, so to allude to what you were saying about Chelsea sort of playing a lot of games, I think from the start of March until the final, that was their 15th game, and it was United's 10th over the same period. So you know, there was there was opportunity there to be fresher. One thing that I would say, obviously, is Chelsea's squad depth. You can't really 
ignore that because the game changed massively when uh, Emma went to the bench and then Penilla Harley came on. Sophie and goal um, gave a bit of extra calmness in midfield. And with the greatest respect to the United squad, you know, Rachel Williams has been absolutely incredible for what she's done this season. She's a cult hero. She will be forever remembered in, in a really fun way, but she's not been ill harder and there's very, very few players in the world that could have that kind of impact on a match. So to have, you know, your strongest 11 and then still bring someone like her on, it kind of shows the levels and, and that's where United don't have it at the minute. I think if you were to compare the starting 11s on the day, I would say it was pretty even. You know, United have got Barry Epps, obviously, a world-class goalkeeper. Alessia Russo has had another good season. L2 and her goal numbers are down, but her sort of creativity and assist are really high. And there's been so many good players, especially in the back four as well, that have had outstanding seasons. But then as soon as you get beyond the starting 11, there's still issues. And I think Mark's asked a lot about recruitment and, um, and uh, depth. And that's something that they really want to push hard, especially now with Champions League on the horizon as well. Next season, that's going to be even harder to sort of balance and control. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I, I think there's there's some frustration for sure. And if you don't have Panilla Harder or a Panilla Harder on your bench, then you are a poorer side because Susie, she really made the difference. I think a lot of us were quite surprised that Emma Hayes didn't make any halftime uh, changes. But when she did bring on Panilla Harder, she immediately lifted the game didn't she yeah I was surprised that she didn't make any half-time changes but I was also kind of glad because when she's done that it's almost been a little bit panicked I thought that in the Conti Cup final when she made changes just before the break and in another big game that I can't remember I think it's maybe against City um, where yeah like a, a couple of big changes at halftime seeming slightly panicked and it not playing out and not looking necessarily to end up tactically being the smartest move so I was I was kind of glad they they stuck to plan and I mean like I put it harder what she comes back she gets two goals and assist in her first game or second game if you count the f- like 15 minutes she played against Barcelona gets two goals and assists in the next game that she starts um comes off after 70 minutes or so and then is on the bench for cup final I mean what's impressive is like how quickly she's slotted straight back into scoring and form despite the fact she's not played this year until this point that I just find like quite staggering um the idea that she might possibly leave this summer I I just you know I I would be doing everything in in my power to try and keep her I think Jane made a good point about the benches being a, a big big difference between the two teams and I think a part of it is down to the fact that Mark Skinner hasn't rotated a huge amount this season. He's very much stuck with the same starting 11, occasional sort of almost forced changes rather than like through choice. Um, Whereas when we spoke to Emma head of the final, she was talking about never thinking about it as a, a set of starting players of always on the training pitch, like constantly like rotating the partnerships, the relationships and having those ready. So, you know, when you have, it doesn't have to be a Panilla Hard to come on. It can be a Sophie Ingle, it can be anyone on that bench. It, it's a very, very natural thing to happen. Whereas I don't think United's changes ever really feel like that. It always feels a little bit like you're trying to fit a square peg into a, into a round hole a little bit that hasn't necessarily got the, the match experience of those relationships in the same way that, that Chelsea have. 
Mm, Mark Skinner's uh, lack of substitutions, Jamie, have been a real topic of controversy this season. Natalie's tweeted in, why, when Vilda is player of the match in the game before, do we not see her in the final? Yeah, I think she was the one, a uh, one player in United's bench that sort of a creative spark who, who could unlock um, defences. Um, she obviously did play really well against Tottenham, but they felt like Susie Cannibalucci, that was almost a forced change because Katie Dillon was suspended. When Ella Toon went off, maybe she could have gone into that number 10 role and to pull strings. I know one of the reasons that he wasn't so keen on starting early in the season is because he didn't want to have a... He didn't he didn't see her as like a part of a double pivot in the defensive side of the ball, but actually against Spurs, she was really good in that role. So it, it didn't make loads of sense to not see her at all. Um, I know she's a really popular fan. She has scored a lot of goals in cup matches this season as well when she's come in, when she's had opportunities. She scored, obviously, an amazing free kick in in an earlier round um, she was the one that yeah you maybe would have thought deserved some minutes at least but like the United is, is it's like a project almost I think you know one of the messages that you could get from Mark is that this isn't done it's like still the start he's I think he sees himself as like a long term builder and he's he's been in the job for less than two years and they've had ten new players in this season and I suppose things just take time eventually to to figure people out and He's very meticulous in his his sort of ways of doing things. So if it takes somebody a long time to get into the team, that's he sees that as like a, almost like a betting in period, um, that they need to sort of understand the philosophies. And it's very prominent with the younger players, but even with more established pros like Asa to Tunkara hasn't really played this season. Um, obviously she's had a really strong, solid centre back partnership in front of her. Um, but you know she was the one that missed out in the squad altogether on the weekend as well. And there's a lot of what he sees as, as learning the philosophies before you sort of get the chance and, and, and run with it. Yeah, one player that did hit the ground running, although actually it took her a few games to score when she joined Chelsea, didn't she? But I mean, now she's just absolutely on fire, Raph, is Sam Kerr. And she's now scored 10 goals in seven cup finals as well for Chelsea, which is pretty impressive. Is she the biggest big game player that there is? Yeah, Hands down, I think at the moment there's, there's no doubt about that. Um, I think what I love about Sam Kerr is there's not an arrogance about her, but it's like she knows she's going to score. She knows she has the ability. She knows she's not fates in these big games. And I, I read something yesterday about her actually planning to do the backflip and even that mentality. When she, once you kind of agree you're going to celebrate the goal that you're going to score and that is then discussed amongst the team, that actually, you know, is infectious. Um, And I think, I actually remember playing against her years and years ago for England. We had a friendly against Australia and I was left back at the time and and this young girl came on and and I remember thinking, oh God, she is just, I can't, don't know what she's doing. She's not kind of, you know, conventional in the way that she plays. Obviously she she has become um, obviously a lot more tactically astute now, but I remember even then thinking, God, this is a really, you know, potentially amazing um, raw talent and you can just see the, the players around her they don't even have to look up and you've seen good girl right and um, when she crosses the ball she doesn't look up she just knows where Sam Kerr's going to be and I think you know the way that she interacts with the players and just it's fantastic for Chelsea to have someone so reliable and then surrounding her having that that high level of players obviously I think girl right as as have created quite a partnership with her um, in supplying um, an awful lot of assists in order to elevate her game. But yeah, I think in general, she is a fantastic player and hope she stays at Chelsea for a long, long time.
Yep, she's pretty incredible, isn't she? Um, listen, I don't think this is going to take very long, Jamie, and I'm just going to you know, caveat this with sorry, but let's discuss the penalty in inverted commas. To be fair, at first glance, and it was pretty much right in front of me, at first glance, I did think it was a, a penalty and the contact was made inside the box. However, the referee, Emily Heaslip, was correct I'm going to go to Jamie first because I know what Susie and Raph's um, opinions are. Uh, What did you make of it? And what did you make of Mark Skinner's comments about it afterwards? I mean, in real time, it looked a penalty. And then in the slow down version, it it kind of still looked like a penalty. There was like an initial touch outside, but then it sort of carried on a bit inside. And I don't know, it's like maybe with the VAR, it's, it's too close to overturn it, even though it could have gone either way in the first place. Obviously, I'm going to say I thought it was a penalty, but the way that um, Nikki Tapara sort of, she, she, it looked like she'd turned away from goal, lost the chance, and then suddenly she accelerated the other way. Completely did. Was it Neve Charles um, for pace in that moment? Um, Mark was absolutely devastated. Like, I, I didn't speak to him in the press conference, but I caught him in the mix zone downstairs afterwards. And he was still talking about it then, so he was absolutely adamant that it should have been a penalty. And I think, yeah, it could have gone either way. And I think either decision would have been okay but obviously whatever side of the fence you're on you're going to be disappointed or elated with how it went but uh, let's let's go to our adjudicator i would say a neutral for a change because we're not talking arsenal in Susie rack i i think it, it shows that when a manager and when i say manager i mean emma hayes like doesn't get asked about an incident like that in a press conference that the overwhelming consensus is that it wasn't uh, controversy I saw in real time I thought oh my instinct was oh was that inside and then the replay showed it and I, like it starts outside and she almost falls into the box for me I mean it sort of does carry on a little bit but I think it'd be really really harsh to give it yeah because I, it does begin outside the box but I think what was weird I, I think what was weird is that they had VAR for the first time in a women's FA Cup final mm-hmm. and didn't use it you know, it, it might, you know, mm. at least go to the screen and let people know that it's been reviewed um, or it's being reviewed when you've got that opportunity. I, I know that the PGMOL are, are trying to be much more transparent. And I think that's absolutely brilliant that the work that we're seeing, seeing them do at the moment. But um, in that instance, from friends of mine who watched on television and for all of us that were in the in the stadium, we didn't seem to know necessarily what was going on and that was perhaps the problem because if it had come up and said something then you know there wouldn't be a in inverted commas controversy yeah I mean sat in the press box we had the advantage of the replays on the little screens watching it you know three or four times so you know you could sort of see that there wasn't much to it there I I also think that Nikita Paris's reputation doesn't necessarily help her in this uh, scenario either like she goes down very easily and I do think she was led into and you know it could legitimately argue that she was fouled but I don't think that her reputation helps her in those kind of scenarios and I think a different player maybe a different outcome as well. Raf? Yeah well I don't think it was a penalty. Look, <laughs> I, I think I actually agree in terms of, of reputation I think if it was a potentially a different player then it would have been a different outcome but that the trainer leg was outside the box and, you know, the rules are rules. I don't know why they didn't use VAR, though. 
Yeah, right. La- last one on on this. It was a, a world record attendance for a domestic women's game. 77,390 had been a sellout. It's eight years the FA Cup's been held at Wembley now. And we're certainly a long way from those original crowds of, of 30,000 for that first game between Chelsea and Notts County. Pretty incredible. And the atmosphere at the beginning of the game, I don't necessarily think the game lived up to the hype, but the atmosphere before the game, Susie, was was pretty something. Oh yeah, it was brilliant. And um like, you know, even going around the fan parks like hours before kickoff, my my husband's cousin was there with her two boys who were like eleven and nine, first time at Wembley and were absolutely buzzing, go like trying out every single like activity around the outside, getting their photo with the World Cup trophy with Kylie Telford behind them in the queue and getting a photo and all that kind of like it was the the buzz was great. Very flat during the game though. Um and I think like I, I sort of think that's a little bit inevitable at this point in the development of the game because you know, you've got this situation. Obviously, there's a lot of talk beforehand about the small allocations for the uh, for the club sides. What eight thousand each, I think it was, and obviously the tickets go on sale pretty much as soon as the last finals finished, because we're not used to selling out women's FA Cup finals. So, like that's almost like been a necessity. Um, and until we get to a point where you can sort of very, very confidently hold back a large number of tickets in the knowledge that whatever fan base makes it through to the final, that they're going to sell out that allocation. You can't really hold back a huge amount more, but you're sort of almost unavoidably in this transition period where if you want to sell out the final, you really have to sort of go for the neutral as well. We're not quite at a point at which you're going to sell out 90,000 to two fan bases. Yeah, no, I think you make a really good point. And actually, I'm just going to bow to to Raf's commercial knowledge, actually, on this, because the the, the tickets were £15 for adults, £5 for for kids. There were about 10,000 no-shows because it was a sellout. Um, what did you make of it? Could they have done it better? Or as, as Susie says, is this, you know, we're still in that transitional period? Yeah, I think Susie answered that really well there. I think increasing the, the the amount of allocation for each team, yes, it is a risk, but it's a risk that we need to start taking. We need to increase the value of the tickets, increase the value of the experience of going to Wembley um, and then reduce that amount of um, no-shows. Well, I think commercially, I would have raised the prices a little bit, to be honest. I would have gone £20 for an adult just to kind of get above that 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 amount just to make it more like you're missing out if you don't because you have paid that price and I think it's always a discussion isn't it about obviously giving away free tickets I definitely am glad they've moved away from that but yeah I still would increase the price level because then you're kind of creating a barrier to entry almost and in regards to to missing out on the game. As I understand it it's the first time that a women's FA Cup final has turned a profit so that is you know brilliant news in in, in, in itself. Uh, right that's it for part one in part two we'll look ahead to a huge weekend in the WSL. Welcome back to part two of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. So we have a massive weekend coming up in the Women's Super League. There are a couple of midweek fixtures for Chelsea at West Ham and Arsenal at Everton before we head into the penultimate round of fixtures with a London derby, a Manchester derby and a relegation battle. Susie, before we get on to the games themselves, Leah Volti signed a new contract to Arsenal last week. There had been lots of speculation that the Switzerland captain might be moving on. How important is it that uh, your club have been able to tie her down? Oh, so important. 
she's such an influential player and I like whenever she's out you notice the hole she leaves I think it was telling that in the season where they had a whole swathe of injuries and seemed to cope you know Kim Little out Miriam are out for a bit you know pre-ACLs and then Leah Vorti goes out that was the difference for me of their season sort of starting to fall apart that where they had that big collapse around that Barcelona game at, at the Emirates and really struggled over the Christmas period for me the, the turning point was the moment Leah Vorti went out she's like so hugely important and I think what's quite exciting and I think that is keeping a lot of players at Arsenal interested in staying is the manner of their fight towards the end of this season. Because you know, if you told me that so many key influential players were going to be ruled out for injury and that they would still like be a sniff away from a, a Champions League final and would still be fighting for Champions League football and you know, on paper in with a shot at a title. Like, I just, I wouldn't have believed you with the with the players that we had available. I didn't think they necessarily had the fight in them to be able to sustain the fight and the challenge for that long. And then you think about the fact that you've got all those players coming back into that environment, adding, you know, their experience, their talent back in, and then the sort of new experience and, uh, and belief of the existing group that, that almost the fringe players to a certain extent being as experienced and built up mentally as the ones who will be coming back in. Like, I think that's actually a really exciting group to be a part of. And I think they, they sort of want to stay a part of it. Champions League football is going to be so key to that, but like her signature is the, the difference between Arsenal winning things and losing things for me. Yeah, a key game coming up in terms of, of their Champions League qualification. Uh, Claire, two of your former clubs meet Midweek, Chelsea play West Ham on Wednesday before they then host Arsenal. I mean, we were talking about Paul Koncheski and West Ham in depth last week. They're they're on a pretty dreadful run. If you're Chelsea, do you rotate in this circumstance to then put a strong showing out against Arsenal, having played in the FA Cup final, or a, a West Ham more of a threat than we're than we're giving them credit for? I think Emma will rotate just because of the amount of games and and that first half performance very clearly. Um, the players look tired, but I think West Ham are, are, yes, their form hasn't been great. There seems to be a bit of uncertainty behind the scenes, but they are still dangerous. You know, West Ham, Chelsea, they've kind of got a bit of history between now, and I don't know whether it's for me personally, but I always found, you know, that West Ham will always try and up their game a little bit against against the, the um, teams higher up in the league. So I think... Yes, they're they're not in a, in the best place, but they still have personality, West Ham, um, and so I wouldn't I wouldn't take this game lightly. For, I would sorry if I was Chelsea, I wouldn't take this game lightly at all. And I think Emma Hayes will still be putting out a strong team. Yes, they will be rotated, but look, West Ham, you know, need the points as well. So it's kind of a change in mindset for them. Almost, you know, I don't want to be harsh, but like, could it get any worse? They know that they can do better, so that's encouraging for West Ham. So, yeah, it's going to be a feisty one for sure. Yeah, I'll tell you what else is uh, going to be pretty feisty. In Manchester Derby, Jamie, I, I bet you're, this is quite a mouth-watering game, bearing in mind what happened to Manchester City last week in their defeat to Liverpool. It, what I find quite interesting is the scheduling in terms of the London Derby is at 12.30 and I think the Manchester Derby is at 6.45, is that right? So they could be going into it 
you know, uh, pressure on on one side or the other, depending on on what happens. Um, Could it make things tough from both perspectives if uh, Chelsea-Arsenal was a draw or is that the best result for you? I mean, Chelsea dropping points is the best result for United, come what may, you know. I'll be about to turn into a big West Ham fan for Wednesday and then I'll switch allegiance to Arsenal for the weekend. <laughs> but um, I think United came into the season with top three as like the overarching target. So it's almost like the goalposts have changed in the last few months because they've been maybe further ahead than people expected because they got to the cup final. Top three as a minimum was still like the expectation. You know, if they'd have finished fourth again, I think probably questions would have been asked and it'd be like, well, why can't they get over this this hurdle? I think with the City result against Liverpool, it's it's not mathematically guaranteed, but it's almost certain because of the the points difference. It's, it's, it's six points, but United's goal difference is 17 better. So unless something crazy happens in the last two weeks, they should finish third against uh, over City and, and obviously just one more point of the remaining games will do it just for the third place obviously there's an opportunity to finish higher I don't know how much comes into it the fact that United have never beaten City in the league before they have done in the cup a couple of times um, they were obviously massively gutted to not win at the Etihad in December because they were winning and they were on top and then you know there was an equaliser and they couldn't quite get it done in that sense so I think it would be interesting to see how United bounce back from the disappointment I think like I said before that it was almost more difficult to swallow that it was so close and if that's extremely deflating how are they going to bounce back but I think they have developed a a stronger resilience this season so hopefully you know they will turn up and and sort of reset and refresh and the fact that it's been a week rather than a few days might help them as well um, in that sense but as as long as they can get over the line get themselves back up I think third place is, is the minimum and it would be nice to win a title, but I still see Chelsea winning it. And, you know, if, if United can hit third place as a minimum, then that's still a success. Yeah, it, it really is. I was talking to Rianne Skinner last night, Susie, and, and she said it takes a minimum of two weeks to get over losing a, a final. And actually, it could affect Manchester United uh, quite badly. Obviously, massive game against City. They are at home, but dropping points could potentially hand Chelsea the league with a game to go. I mean, it is crap, isn't it, that the FA Cup is being played before the end of the season? Like, there's no, there's no two ways about it. Mark Skinner was asked about it in the press conference after the final, and he said, you know, you you've got to play the hand you dealt, blah blah, like diplomatic answer. But it is strange, right? Like, why was that the case? I don't know. I've, I I feel like I should have asked that question, and I've not. <laughs> um, I'm guessing it's a scheduling thing. I'm guessing that there's some kind of reason for it not being but like whether it be the tightness to the world cup whether there be men's games again in the way i don't know but it is weird and not ideal for the teams that are competing in it because it's usually your last right i mean I've, i almost like feel sorry for chelsea as well you don't get to celebrate with the same abandon that you do when when it's the last game of the season um and yeah that's hard too i suppose it would mean that the so it, it's all very um concertinaed up isn't it at the end of the season mm-hmm. so they moved the end of the WSL season to the 27th which is the same day as the championship playoff final which is very upsetting for me as long as Luton Town get there <laughs> keep everything crossed um, and I think the men's FA Cup finals on the 3rd of June is that the latest mm. finished we've had in, in ages so maybe you know because then of course you know Wembley shuts down after that for 
the summer. I think Harry Styles is there. So no, no football. <laughs> so, and then so, the 3rd of June is Champions League final as well. So, yeah, so Champions it's League final, so, you've so got, much yeah. clashing. It's it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. That's a sellout, by the way. We haven't even spoken about that. But um, it's not just the WSL title that could be wrapped up this weekend, Raf. Relegation as well. If Leicester were to beat West Ham and Spurs beat Reading, that would basically confirm Reading as heading down to the Championship. Tottenham have moved the game to Saturday to play it as a double header at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. I mean, I'm not quite sure what you think about that. You're shaking your head already. Could 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 this back could this backfire? Yeah, I'm not a big fan about ch- making things a big deal when you change something that's so important. Obviously, there's you know these games, Reading versus Tottenham. You know, Reading desperately need a win. Tottenham desperately need a win. You're kind of adding pressure of an occasion with a team that is obviously. I know they have some you know some really talented players within there in the Tottenham team, but together they're quite inexperienced, and so. Walking out onto a pitch in a different environment, you know, I wouldn't have done that. I, I think you need a bit of consistency when you're coming into the latter stages. Look, I think hopefully there'll be a, be a big crowd for them. But I, I remember actually at Chelsea, I think the first time we played at Sandford Bridge, we played Wolfsburg in the Champions League. And we were just like so far out of our comfort zone because we'd never played there before. And it kind of really added to the fact that we got absolutely smashed. So... Hopefully that won't happen to, to Tottenham. But yeah, I, I wouldn't have changed that. I think you need consistency in times like this. And yeah, really kind of praying for Reading. Um, I'd hate to see them go down, but it doesn't look good. I've also not seen a double header in football like work effectively in England. You know, we, we see, we've seen it work in rugby, cricket. But I've never seen it work well in football. It's always the like poorer relation that gets a little bit of an overspill. And it's like, oh, everyone is just here waiting with their pint ahead of the big show starting kind of thing. I just, that I find really, um, when it's such a key game, to not have your fan base necessarily as engaged as you would want them to be in a game like that, that feels to me a mistake. Like, I don't necessarily mind them playing the big stadium, but like I don't feel they they play there enough for it to be natural enough. In the same way, you you know you now don't mind Arsenal playing Chelsea at the Emirates because they're so used to it that it's become a home to a certain extent. But the Spurs stadium isn't a home for Tottenham yet. It's still quite alien. There's a lot of players in that squad who haven't played there or have only played there maybe once, and. It just, yeah, it feels a little bit of a strange decision to have like this kind of half engaged fan base for such a key game in a stadium that they're not that used to playing in. Like it sort of speaks to the, I would say, the attitude of Tottenham towards the women's team in that there is a a loose interest, a desire to have the showpiece, an eye on the good things being done and thinking, oh yeah, we could get in on that piece of the pie, but without the understanding and the valuing and the support and structure behind the team that gets you there in the first place, I'd say maybe. Mm. Yeah, like like almost just going, right, we'll pick that one. Oh, it just happens to be a really crucial, <laughs> um, you know, six-pointer, if, if you like. It's going to be a huge game, isn't it? It's... Uh, it's it's a big weekend. We knew that the uh, the penultimate weekend of the WSL would be a pivotal one, and it certainly is proving that. Listen, the double debuts went very well. Jamie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, any insight I can give to you on United is 
is always welcome. So thank you very much. We will definitely have you on again. Raf, it's just been a pleasure to see you, as it always is. Have a good day at work. Come back with us soon. I will do. Thank you for having me both. Really good to see you all. Cezy Rack. Well, you know I always say always a pleasure because it is always a pleasure. Um, I won't see you for the rest of the week, but wish Luton luck, please, for a change. <laughs> be really nice. Always praying for Luton. Always praying for Luton. I feel like I need a shirt. I'm an honorary fan in like tribute to keeping you happy on podcast days. <laughs> listen, by the time some people listen to this podcast, they will know <laughs> Luton, Luton's <laughs> fate. Um, so this all might go horribly wrong, but I'm being very, very positive. Right, we'll be back next week to round up everything that's happened in the WSL. We could have a champion, we could have lost a club, or it could all be going down to the last day of the season like the SWPL. Uh, just a reminder for you, you can now email us on womensfootballweekly at theguardian.com and keep those questions coming in. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is produced by Jolene Gofan and Jesse Parker-Humphreys. Music composition was by Laura Iredale. Our executive producer is Sal Armat. This is The Guardian.